Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, and as most of you know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In prior episodes, you've heard topics as diverse as and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York. The history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of African Americans in the city going back to the time of the Dutch. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored bicycles and cycling. They've been around for more than 200 years, if you can believe it. We've also looked at the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, by the way. We've looked at our public library systems. That's plural. We have three of them, actually. Not one, not two. We've looked at some of our great train stations, and we've even taken a look at some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. A week or so after Labor Day, with the beginning of October on the horizon, and specifically the first Monday in October, uh, which is actually the official start of the term of the U.S. Supreme Court, I thought that a really interesting topic for the show would be to take a look at New Yorkers who served on the court, since Rediscovering New York is a program about New York and New Yorkers, and to look at justices past and present. When Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death from cancer created an opening on the court, I thought it would be even more interesting to have this show in what I thought might be the middle of a nomination and confirmation process. While I suppose the topic for this show is even more propitious than I thought it would be originally, as a new justice of the Supreme Court was confirmed less than 24 hours ago, now Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett. For our show tonight, we'll take a look at New York City and more specifically New Yorkers and the U.S. Supreme Court. Who were they? Where did they come from? What was their background? What led them to the nation's highest court? And maybe, just maybe, has the so-called New York state of mind been present on Supreme Courts past and present? My guest for tonight is a special guest. It's Robert Piggott. Robert is vice president and general counsel of Phipps Houses, New York City's oldest and largest nonprofit developer of low-income and affordable housing. He previously spent 11 years as a section chief and bureau chief in the New York Attorney General's Charities Bureau. He's an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School, teaching nonprofit law. And Bob is the author of a great book. It's called New York's Legal Landmarks, a guide to legal edifices, institutions, law, history, and curiosity on the city streets. And for anyone who loves architecture and New York, it is a must read. I'm having a great time looking through it, although I haven't finished it yet. Uh, Bob received a BA from Hamilton College and his JD from Columbia University Law School. Bob Piggott, a a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you, Jeff. Before we talk about the subject for the show, I'd like to talk about your background and your career. Um, At what point in your life or your schooling did you decide that you were going to go to law school? Um, Actually, I put it off. I applied to law school when I was in college 
And I put it off to teach high school in New York City for a couple of years at Columbia Grammar and Prep, which was a lot of fun and a good thing. To, it's good to take a break before embarking on something as demanding as law school. So that, I'm very glad I did that. I, I taught high school math, actually. Oh, wow. And that probably made you more committed to actually do law school after having, you know, yeah, I always thought you know, I, I didn't go to graduate school, but I, there were people who went right on to graduate school. Uh, I went to Vassar also in upstate New York, not too far from you, from Hamilton College. And um, uh, I often thought it was uh, what it was like to take a break and then go on to something, you know, for uh, more graduate schooling. The people would be even more committed to doing it if they took a break. Um, what took you to the New York Attorney General's office in the Charities Bureau? Well, actually, I knew nothing about the Charities Bureau when I saw an ad in the New York Law Journal back then in 1997. That's how people learned about jobs. They read ads in the newspaper. And uh, it was just a you know, this is not very admirable or noble. We had a child that was very, very demanding and I had to get out of private practice. It was just too consuming. So I went to work for the state. And while it is, you know, it's a demanding job, it's nothing like private practice. And I was able to lead the regular life that I wanted while my children were young, but at the same time do a job that became really the most compelling uh, job that I've ever had. In the New York Attorney General's Charities Bureau, you are, along with the Internal Revenue Service, that's the federal regulator, you are the principal regulator of not-for-profit corporations in the state of New York. So uh, I did a lot of affirmative work investigating misconduct at nonprofits, and it was really just fascinating. And, uh, you know, for every walk of life, there's a corresponding nonprofit organization, and you really become exposed to every facet of New York life through doing that work. And I, I really loved it. But as I said, I had a couple of kids and eventually I had to get, get out of state work. And at that point, that was the credential that I needed to get an in-house job. And uh, I ended up at Phipps Houses, which as you noted, is a large nonprofit that develops affordable housing. How did you go from working for enforcement in the AG's office to working for a nonprofit? What was, what was your journey that led you there? Well, it's kind of an artificial credential because the one, if I know one thing in the law, the one little bit of expertise that I have, and I teach it at Fordham, it's nonprofit law. But once you become the in-house lawyer, the general counsel for a large organization, even if it's a nonprofit, you, I do that maybe 2% of the time, and I'm thrilled when I get a chance to use, use that knowledge. But most of the time, I'm dealing with the same issues that uh, you would have at, a, at any sort of for-profit organization. Contracts, employment matters, the, the whole range of litigation supervision. So uh, it, it, was, it was the natural segue, but it, was, it isn't always all that relevant. Is it too personal a question to ask you how you, how you wound up at Phipps Houses? Uh, no, this, this is how things happen. A trustee uh, was the summer camp friend of my college roommate, and he told me of the job opening. And I obviously I went through all the normal channels after that, but that's how you learn of things. Learn of things very often. Oh, that's great! And it's the oldest not-for-profit housing uh, organization in the United States. Yeah, it actually has an it has an interesting origin. It was started by Henry Phipps. Henry Phipps was Andrew Carnegie's partner at Carnegie Steel. Henry Phipps was the CFO, and J.P. Morgan took Carnegie Steel public. Both Carnegie and Phipps made a ton of money off of their stock. Both came, both came to New York. Carnegie got into libraries, and Phipps got into affordable housing. In 1905, he gave a million dollars uh, to build an, a, a model tenement on uh, 
uh, on the thir 31st Street in Manhattan. And back then, a million dollars could buy quite a lot of model tenement. It was really a very impressive building. Uh, in the two years that, in the few years that followed, he built a couple more that are still standing behind Lincoln Center. And um, that that's how and Phipps Houses was incorporated by special act of the legislature in 1905. And we've been going at it ever since, no longer with Phipps family money. Since the early 70s, uh, we develop affordable housing by participating in government programs that subsidize, subsidize affordable housing. Well, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I know that uh, uh, New York got into the business of public housing and affordable housing. That was under uh, Mayor LaGuardia in the 30s. In fact, first houses down uh, in the East Village in Alphabet City is, you know, is uh, to me is quite a monument. But yeah. I didn't know I didn't know about Phipps houses. That's great. Um, is there anything unique about the low income and affordable housing that Phipps houses develops compared to other organizations that you see? There's affordable housing that goes up periodically. I live in Harlem, and you'll see that this organization puts it up, or that organization. There was one for, uh, when I lived on Second Street in the East Village, the Cooper Square project. It took like three times as long to build that seven-story building as it took to build the Empire State Building. I was wondering about that, but is there anything kind of a unique sauce that Phipps Houses brings well, to? We the have a lot of experience and a good track record, and when we're very, we remain very active. We just we have large tracts of land that we're developing in East New York and far Rockaway in, in, in Forest Hills, Queens. Um, so, it, you know, it, I'm, I'm very lucky to be associated with as vital an organization as Phipps Houses. Well, Bob, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, about your book a little bit later in this episode, but now to um, the main event, New Yorkers in the Supreme Court. Um, Can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, when I when the book came out, I would uh, before every book talk, I would say I will give a free copy of my book to anyone who could answer this question. Mind you, this was five years ago. So this this was true five years ago. Sadly, it's not true today. Uh, there are four New York City high schools uh, that were attended by current U.S. Supreme Court justices. What were those high schools? Um you told me in a prior conversation, and I forgot. Okay, <laughs> so, I, forgot. I can't. I can't. Anyway, no, I can't remember. I gave this talk. Well, actually, actually, the one I do know is Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she went to Madison, and I went to Midwood High School. Ah. And our I mean, I didn't. I've never met her. Never knew her. But uh, she was. Uh, her family went to the East Midwood Jewish Center. I went to day school there, and so you know, our, our facets about our lives overlapped. I had friends who went to Madison, but way after when she did. And of course, Midwood and Madison competed against each other in Sing with uh, Lincoln High School. Uh, well, I asked this question probably thirty times. And, uh, you know, sometimes collectively the group would come up with all four answers, but never did a single person come up with the answer. And I would breathe this mock sigh of relief that I didn't have to give away a free copy of the book. Um, well, I already bought mine, but let me take a guess. I know that uh, um, uh, Antonin Scalia went to Xavier. And I know that uh, Sonia Sotomayor went to another Catholic school in the Bronx. Elena Kagan, I think, went to Hunter College High School, did she? She and did. then, and then Madison High School. So I don't, I don't know what school Sonia Sotomayor went. I know it was a Catholic school, so I got three out of four. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I already bought my copy. So <laughs> when we uh, get to meet after COVID, I'm going to have to bring it and have you inscribe something really uh, meaningful in it. Um, now in New York and the Supreme Court, um, New Yorkers have figured prominently in the court's history. I mean, in the court for most of its history. 
Um, before we get to the New Yorkers who impacted the Supreme Court, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the court's genesis and its establishment. Um, who were some of the prominent New Yorkers involved in both the Constitutional Convention um, of 1787 that really created the Republican leading up to that? Well, uh, Governor Morris uh, of New York, the more sane area of the Bronx, was at the Constitutional Convention, and he's credited with drafting the, the preamble to the Constitution. And two of the three authors of the Federalist Play Papers were New Yorkers, Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, along with James Madison of Virginia. Well, we, we've actually talked about Hamilton on a couple of other programs, and Hamilton is uh, probably someone who doesn't need any introduction. And a lot of people listening to the show uh, know who Hamilton was. Um, a lot of New Yorkers recognize the name John Jay, um, especially because one of our colleges in CUNY is named after him. But many of them don't know who John Jay was. Um, who was he? What did he do? What What was his, uh, you know, how how did he impact uh, the founding of the Republic. And and he was also the first Supreme Court uh, uh, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. That's right. He was selected by George Washington. Uh, he was from an old New York family. His family estate, Claremont, is on the Hudson and can be visited. It's still open to the public or will be shortly, I hope. And uh, if, if you might remember from your American history class, the Jay Treaty, he negotiated a treaty with England that was very unpopular with the, the Jeffersonians. That was were, as being too pro-English, the Jeffersonians were more pro-French at the time. But as, as, as you pointed out, he was the first chief justice of the United States. And uh, at the time, the capital of the United States was located in New York City for about a slightly more than a year from 1789 into 1790. The capital was here. New York City was actually hoping it would be the permanent capital. It spent a lot of money renovating its old city hall on the corner of Wall and Broad Street and the, to, to be federal hall to house all three branches. Well, two, no, two branches of government. Um, and it hoped that uh, that New York City would remain the capital. I think from, from, the, from the musical Hamilton, a lot more people know about that bargain that was struck to move the capital down to the, uh, the Potomac area in exchange for the, uh, the, the Jefferson faction's agreement to allow the federal government to assume uh, the state's debt. So the capital, there was an interim period for, throughout the 1790s when the capital was in Philadelphia, but then it moved to its permanent location, its current location in Washington, DC. But everything happened for the first time in New York City. The Bill of Rights was adopted by Congress in that federal hall on the corner of Wall Street and Broad Street. The United States Supreme Court convened for the first time in New York City, not in Old City Hall, in a block several in a building several blocks further down Broad Street, sort of across the street from where Francis Tavern is now. How convenient. <laughs> I mean, they could, you know, after, uh, you know, after a court session, go across and uh, be yeah. and uh, uh, be fed to their to their hearts' content. Um, and the court was here for a year before it moved to Philadelphia in 1790, right? Right. Oh. And um, that building was torn down around 1799, mm -hmm. I think. It was called in colonial times uh, the Royal Exchange Building, then the Merchant Exchange Building, and it's also the first place where the what is now the Southern District of New York met, and it was the first federal district court to meet. And that's why the Southern District likes to refer to itself as the mother court 
the first of all courts. It even met before the several weeks before the Supreme Court. Oh, wow. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with lawyer, teacher, and author Bob Piggott, author of New York's Legal Landmarks. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc, now broadcasting 24 hours a day. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. And you're back to Rediscovering New York in our special episode about New York and the United States Supreme Court. My guest for the evening is Robert Pickett. Bob is a lawyer, a teacher, and an author. He recently released the second edition of New York's Legal Landmarks, a guide to legal edifices, institutions, lore, history, and curiosities on the city streets. Um, Bob, we ended the last segment by talking, by you mentioning uh, the sort of founding of the of the Southern District. Um, I want to ask you about the circuits. In the early days of the Supreme Court, justices were required to ride the circuit. What was that? Well, um, there was in between the district courts, which exist to this day, and the Supreme Court, which exists to this day, there was this curious hybrid called the circuit court. Uh, and it was a combination of a trial court and an appellate court. And on appeals, there were no dedicated circuit court judges. So whenever there were appeals, the panel would consist of the district court judge and the U.S. Supreme Court justice for that area. So um, the, the U.S. Supreme Court ju- justice, in addition to appearing appeals, would have to ride the circuit and go to different uh, different locations within that circuit, sometimes to try cases. You'd have a U.S. Supreme Court uh, judge serving as a trial judge, sometimes to hear intermediate appeals. But that it was, it was quite a burden on the judges. They hated doing it. And eventually, uh, 
the, the current system of the intermediate appellate court was adopted and that riding of the circuit was done away with in the 1890s. Mm. Oh, was that late in the 1890s? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, Another prominent New Yorker who served on the court in its early days, who actually also rode the circuit in New York, was a guy by the name of Henry Brockholz Livingston. Who was he? Now, he's not at all prominent. If it weren't for something he had done in private practice, I probably would have never focused on him. He, he, he was yeah, the typical profile. He was from a prominent New York, New York family, the Livingstons. And uh, he was appointed to the high court in 1807 by Thomas Jefferson. But it's really something that he did in private practice when he was a, a lawyer practicing law in New York City uh, that brought him to my attention. Uh, he, you, you, all, you remember from the O.J. Simpson trial, the dream team that was established for O.J.'s defense, Johnny Cochran, Alan Dershowitz, F. Lee Bailey, uh, and the, uh, among others. It was, called, it was called the dream team. Well, the first dream team... Livingston was a member of, and he was the least remarkable member of that dream team. And what's remarkable about this dream team is it consisted of Livingston and Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. This was 1800, and they, Burr and Hamilton are working side by side as co-counsel. It was a murder. It was a murder trial. This man named Levi Weeks was accused of having killed a fellow boarder in his boarding house, and she was found at the bottom of a well in Lisbernard's Meadow. Uh, and somehow, you wouldn't think this very modest person would be able to do that, but he assembled this defense team of Hamilton, Burr, and Livingston. And in what was then a very long trial, three days, with over 50 witnesses, uh, they- 50 witnesses? Yeah. They wow. Se- they secured his acquittal. But it's interesting to think that that was 1800, and only four years later, in 1804, the two of them would meet on the plains of Weehawken with dueling pistols. And I always say it's sort of a cautionary tale that you have to be very careful in choosing your co-counsel because you never can be certain how it's going to turn out. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Was uh, Brockholz Livingston from the same family that that Robert Livingston was from, yes, that the famous Livingstons? Uh, he was. Hmm. In fact, that's why he changed his name. I mean, that's why he used his middle name, Brockholz, because... Henry, there was another Henry Livingston in the family, and he wanted to differentiate himself from that other Livingston who was well-known. Hmm. It's kind of like Carol of Carrollton, one of the signers of the Declaration yeah. of Independence. There were two of them. Uh, so he added the name of Carrollton. Um, we can't talk about New York Supreme Court justices without talking about Columbia Law School. So many of them went to Columbia. When was it founded? Where was it? Where did it, had it, it moved around a lot. Let's talk about Columbia. How old is Columbia Law School? Columbia goes back to the, yeah, to, to, to the 18th century, training lawyers. There weren't law schools as such, but, but they were training lawyers. It was training lawyers and turning out law and turning out, turning out lawyers. Um, but the, the location of Columbia, like everything in New York City, it migrated uptown. It was at several locations in, in lower Manhattan. But the place that, I, I, that interests me the most is where it was in the mid and late 19th century until it moved its campus up to Morningside Heights. And it was right behind, uh, it was right behind St. Patrick's on Madison and 49th. And that's where it was when, it, when Benjamin Cardozo went there. Uh, when Charles Evans Hughes went there, um, and uh, the, the whole school was there. But then, then they bought their they bought their land up in Morningside Heights, and everything was moved up there in the in the eighteen nineties. 
So um, the Columbia Law School wasn't on the campus of Columbia College when it was on what's now present day Rockefeller Center. It was it was over a block or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Was it part of Columbia University? Was it was it a separate? It was always part of Columbia University. And you know, in the late nineteenth century, there were a lot of standalone law schools that were not affiliated with undergraduate institutions. And New York Law, which exists to this day, was founded by a group of um, by 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 a group of Columbia Law professors who were dissatisfied with the Socratic method that was being implemented at Columbia Law School. And they went off and founded New York York Law School, which was one of the largest law schools in the country at the time. Well, you mentioned Benjamin Cardozo, so let's let's go to him next. Um, Cardozo was Jewish. Um, Unlike most Jewish New Yorkers, uh, though, he was Sephardic, and his family was affiliated with what was not only the first and oldest congregation in New York, but also in the United States, uh, Congregation Sha'arit Yisrael, which means the remnants of Israel. You can still see it on Central Park West and I think 66th Street. Um, it was also known as the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. But he wasn't the first uh, of his family who was in the legal profession. His, his father was a judge, wasn't he? That's right. His father uh, met sort of uh, an ignominious end. His father was a, a Supreme Court justice in the 1860s and was part of the Tweed Ring. Uh, New York Supreme Court or U.S. Supreme Court? Tweed is. Um, and in my book, I talk a lot about the Tweed Courthouse on Chambers Street, which is notorious. It's actually a lovely building, but it was never very popular because it was associated with the tremendous corruption of Boss Tweed. He controlled a lot of the public monies at the time, and um, it was it, it cost twelve million and twelve million dollars was spent on it, and most of that money went into the pockets of Tweed and his cronies in the Tweed Ring. So, and he he had a he, he, a lot of public officials were on his payroll, including one Albert Cardozo, who was the father of Benjamin Cardozo. Uh, he, Albert Cardozo was not impeached. He resigned before he was removed from office, resigned in disgrace, but somehow was able to resurrect his law practice and support his family, including Albert Jr. and young Benjamin, uh, and built up his law practice. Um, But many people speculate that it was the shame over his father that really propelled Benjamin Cardozo to lead such a life of moral rectitude that he wanted to vindicate uh, the family name after the disgrace of his father. Mm. I wonder if that has anything to do with him never having been married, but uh, that's another story. What was um, Cardozo's professional journey before becoming a judge? Well, um, so his father, you know, he, he was in this household with his father, rebuilding his little his legal career after the Tweed scandal. Um, and at, at one point they... Albert Sr. was prosperous enough that they bought a brownstone on Madison and approximately 68th Street. If you go there now, it's still standing. The main floor is a store, a fancy ladies' underwear store, and above it is uh, several several uh, stories of brownstone. So you can imagine Benjamin Cardoza just leisurely strolling down Madison Avenue from 68th Street to 49th Street to go to Columbia. He had a good, ed- interesting education before going to Columbia. This is sort of a curious little fact. He had a tutor when he was young, and it was Horatio Alger of the rags to riches fame. So imagine being prepared for life by the person who was writing all these American dream novels or who would go on to write such novels. But uh, he, he ended up going to Columbia Law School, and after that, 
he uh, went into practice at the family law firm. The father was no longer practicing at that time, but his older brother, Albert Jr. was. And then he was, he, he was a very successful lawyer. Uh, he was elected to the Supreme Court of the, sta- of the state of New York, which as most of you know, is the trial court level. So he was a judge in the Tweed Courthouse for a brief period of time. And it's really remarkable after just about a year as a Supreme Court justice, he was elevated to the uh, Court of Appeals of the state of New York, the highest court in the state of New York. And that's really where he made his name, writing brilliant common law opinions that uh, lawyers still cite to this day over a hundred years later. And after that very distinguished career on the highest court of the state of New York, In 1930, he was appointed by Herbert Hoover to the Supreme Court. Hmm. And how long was he on the court for? Was he on the court till his death? He he was on the court till his death, I think 1938, perhaps. Um, And, you know, so the last eight years of his life, he relocated from New York City to D.C. And I don't think he preferred living in D.C. And as you noted, he was a bachelor. He was remarkably close to his sister, um, but he never married. And uh, when he died, his ties to New York are uh, shown by the fact that he was buried not in D.C., but back in New York City at a Sephardic cemetery in the, in the Cypress Hills area of New York. Huh. I wonder if his family uh, goes back to when um, uh, the first uh, uh, Dutch, uh, well, uh, uh, Portuguese Jews came from Hesife back in the 1650s. Because he was he was he was a Portuguese and Spanish ancestry. I think so. And his he was cousins with Nathans and and uh, Gomez's these these very well known Sephardic names. Actually, on my mother's side, I'm Sephardic, and her mother's my my maternal grandmother. Her maiden name was Cardozo. Oh wow! Any relation? No, that that, that was with a Z. Uh, she was with an S. Our, uh, Benjamin Cardozo's with a Z. Oh. Well, I like to say that I'm part Sephardic because my mother uh, uh, is Italian-American, uh-huh. but uh, uh, she wasn't born Jewish, although she is now. So I really can't say I'm Sephardic. I'm Ashkenazi. Uh, Tunisian Jews. Sorry? You're Tunisian Jews. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with Bob Piggott. Bob is an adjunct professor at Fordham School of Law in the area of nonprofit law. He's the general counsel of Phipps Houses and also the author of this great book, New York's Legal Landmarks, which we're going to talk about on the other side of the break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. you a conscious co-creator are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness i'm sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant and on my show the conscious consultant hour awakening humanity we will touch upon all these topics and more listen live at our new time on thursdays at 12 noon eastern time that's the conscious consultant hour awakening humanity thursdays 12 noon on talkradio.nyc 
Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris Stevens. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook. Uh, You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Wanted to note before we continue with our conversation with Bob, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Bob, before we talk more about New Yorkers in the Supreme Court, I want to ask you some questions about your book. It's a great book. One of the things I love, I'm a real maven for architecture. uh, And I also have to add that uh, one of our sponsors, uh, one of his favorite buildings in New York is the Surrogates Court Building on, on Chamber Street. What inspired you to write this book? Well, um, actually, I can pinpoint the moment when I was inspired to write the book. It was a warm Sunday afternoon in August, about seven years ago, and I was exploring the Sunset Park neighborhood of Brooklyn, and I came upon this very impressive structure. Uh, And um, over one door were the words magistrate's court, over the other door were the words municipal court. And at this point, I'd been practicing law over 20 years. I'd never heard of either of these courts, but it got me to research uh, uh, what were these municipal courts and magistrates' courts. And I discovered that there had once been, New York City had once been dotted with all these small jurisdiction, jurisdictional courts, municipal courts and magistrates' courts. And as I sort of, I started collecting images and realized there was, there might be a book in it. And that's, that's the origin of New York's legal landmarks. What would you say was the most interesting part of your research? Um... You know, I had some interesting um, sources, uh, the things the things that I had used to this day, but went back 100 years that were really important sources of information, like 
You've, many of us have seen the New York City Green Book, that directory of municipal buildings in New York. It comes out every year. Well, it, was, it first came out in 1918. So if you want to see where a certain court was in 1920, you go to the 1920 Green Book. Similarly, um, Martindale Hubble, the directory of lawyers, has been around for over 125 years. So if I wanted to see where Benjamin Cardozo practiced law, I could look him up in the 1896 Martindale Hubble and see uh, what his firm consisted of back then and where they were located. Well, one thing I love about your book is you not only have photographs of extant buildings, whether or not they're still used as courts, but drawings of some old court buildings and other uh, edifices that uh, had legal things happening there, even the old city hall back in the day. And there are photographs of some buildings that are no longer there. Um, what was the most fun part of the research you did? Was there a fun part of it, the most fun? Well, I, I did a lot of legwork walking all over the city. It wasn't always fun. I remember taking my bike on the Staten Island Ferry and bicycling deep into the heart of Staten Island to find the new Brighton Village Hall. It was landmarked. It surely had to be there, and it had been torn down. And you might say, how could that happen to a landmark building? The owner had lo- allowed it to fall into set- potentially had allowed it to fall into such a state of disrepair that it had to be torn down. When was it built? It was uh, built around 18, in the, in the late 19th century. Oh. The new Brighton Village Hall and also functions as a, court, as a courthouse. And some of these buildings are very grand and they were built as courthouses. And some of them were surprisingly, comically modest. The city renting space on the second floor of a movie theater for a municipal court. So litigants had to troop through the movie theater lobby and up a flight of stairs to get to the courtroom. Where was that? <laughs> that actually was on the Upper West Side. That was uh, the old uh, uh, Riverside uh, movie theater, which was on 96, uh, 96th Street and Broadway, next oh. to the era movie theater. Wow, wow, such history. Um, getting back to New Yorkers and the court, um, one incredibly prominent New Yorker was Charles Evans Hughes. Um, he was not only on the Supreme Court, but he had positions that were prominent before his rise to, uh, uh, to chief justice. He actually had a remarkable career. He was first a governor. He was an associate justice of the, of the court. He then resigned and became a presidential candidate. He ran against Woodrow Wilson in 1916. He became secretary of state under Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge as sort of a response to uh, the Wilsonian uh, uh, points uh, in post-World War, but we're not going to get into that. And then he became Chief Justice, um, also appointed by Coolidge. He wasn't originally from New York City, though, was he? He was from upstate New York. Uh, He started at Colgate University for college, which was then called uh, Madison, Uh, but then he transferred to Brown and um, came down to to New York, went went to law school here. At his first firm, he married the boss's daughter. The leading partner at his firm, he married her daughter, and uh, he was a, he, he practiced here for, for a number of years. It actually, the stress got to him, and he took a break, and he taught at Cornell Law School for a number of years, but then came down, made his career here, became known for some investigations he, he conducted of public utilities, and that was the springboard to his election as governor. And it's just so interesting that a governor should be, a, a former governor should be appointed I mean, he was a, he was obviously a very distinguished lawyer, but that a former governor should be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court as he was by Taft. He, now you just don't have that variety of experience 
than the people who are sitting on the high court. They're all, maybe they, they did a clerkship with the Supreme Court. Maybe they worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office for a few years, appointed to the bench. Maybe they were professors, a lot of academic writings, but you don't have that hard, hard uh, bare knuckle uh, political experience that a lot of the justices had generations ago. Oh, actually, we talked about Earl Warren briefly. He was the governor of California and he was appointed to the Supreme Court in the 50s. So that that tradition, you know, did maintain itself for for a number of decades. How did Hughes get to the court originally? He was appointed by William Howard Taft before Wilson became president. Well, he was he was he was a prominent Republican and with a very distinguished record as a lawyer and he'd been governor. So he was a national figure. And I suppose that's what accounts to his appointment as an associate justice. But think of this, 1916, Woodrow Wilson is running for re-election. It is June of the election year. And at that point, that late in the campaign, Hughes is drafted to be the Republican candidate to run against Wilson, who's a, the Democrat who's running for re-election. It was just, just months away, just months away from the election. He steps down from the Supreme Court. That sort of thing today is just inconceivable. Mm. And it's often said, you know, some people speculate that he probably, he barely lost. He went to sleep thinking he had won on election night. And if he had spent a little more time in California, reportedly he snubbed the governor of California at a hotel and didn't meet with him. He ended up losing the state of California. And that's what made the difference in the election. But he could well have been president, could well have been elected president in 1916. Wow, history repeats itself. That uh, also uh, sounds a little bit like the story that happened 32 years later with another governor of New York who thought yeah. he went to bed thinking that he uh, he won the election. Um, of course, with, with Hughes, we have to talk about FDR's attempt to expand the court. FDR, another New Yorker, but who was not on the court, who became president. Mm-hmm. Um, what role did, did Hughes play in, um, at least in public opinion, in trying to thwart FDR's attempt to um, uh, expand the court? Well, right now you hear a lot of commentators saying we're about to have the most conservative Supreme Court we've ever had since the time of Charles Evans Hughes. The court then was very conservative and uh, Roosevelt, to his frustration, did not. It took a long time for him to get his first appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in a series of decisions, this Supreme Court, led by Charles Evans Hughes, was striking down as unconstitutional a number of New Deal measures. And uh, that's why FDR got it into his head to pack the court. It was a highly unpopular move. And luckily, um, they call it the switch in time that saved nine. Bob, you're there. Uh, yes. I can okay, good, good. Um, so uh, we'll actually uh, 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 cut out the dead air for the podcast. But uh, um, uh, the last I heard was a stitch uh, in time saved nine. You're talking about uh, the Hughes court and FDR. Right. One of the justices, you know, went to the other side and voted to support some New Deal legislation. And with that, the obstacle that the Supreme Court had represented to the New Deal legislation ended and FDR no longer felt he needed to pack the court and withdrew uh, his his backing of this very unpopular measure. Well, we're going to take uh, a break in a minute. But before we do, I want to talk briefly about Felix Frankfurter. who was also appointed to the bench by a Republican. Cardoza was appointed to the bench by a Republican. Hughes was, and so was Frankfurter. Um, He was uh, uh, not born in the United States. Actually, I'm I'm wrong about that. I think he was appointed to the bench by FDR, my mistake. 
Um, he was not born in the United States, which is actually unusual for a Supreme Court justice, but immigrated with his family when he was 12 years old. Um, he lived on the Lower East Side in the 1890s when it was a real magnet for Jewish immigrants who mostly came from Eastern Europe. Um, and I was actually, a uh, little thing I found out about it today that kind of made me smile. He not only enjoyed playing chess, but also enjoyed shooting craps on the street. Um, uh, I found out that uh, my great-grandfather was arrested for running a craps game in Astoria in 1945. <laughs> but uh, I wonder if uh, uh, Justice Frankfurter was there. If he was, uh, they must have hustled him out the door before the police came in the front. When did Frankfurter decide that he wanted to be a lawyer? Well, he was he was always a brilliant student. He, uh, you know, he um, there was a local library that he practically lived in. And he was a very precocious, brilliant student. And he 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 managed to get into the into Harvard Law School. And he was he was at the top of his class. And yet, as was common for Jews in that era, he could not find a job at one of the established Wall Street firms. Finally, uh, the Winthrop Stinson, Stinson firm uh, um, interviewed him, and uh, they were willing to offer him a job uh, at a good salary. They suggested that he change his name. Frankfurter was thought to be not the most uh, propitious name for a, a legal career at a firm like that. He rejected that suggestion, suggestion, but he didn't stay long in private practice. He followed Stinson into the U.S. Attorney's Office and, but he really had a very long career through the 20s and 30s as a professor at Harvard Law School. And that is where FDR found him in the late 1930s when he appointed him to the bench. Uh, he really was a New Deal proponent when he was appointed to the bench. Over the length of his career on the Supreme Court, which extended into the 60s, he became increasingly conservative. But he started out uh, as one of the more liberal members of the court. Mm. Well, one thing about him that's great is in 1920, he helped found the American Civil Liberties Union. And uh, he did retire from the court after having a stroke in 1962 uh, and was the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom by John Kennedy before he died shortly thereafter. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Bob Pickett about New Yorkers and the United States Supreme Court. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Talk Radio. NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. To our episode on Rediscovering New York about New Yorkers in the Supreme Court, my guest is Bob Piggott, author of New York's Legal Landmarks and also teaches nonprofit law at Fordham Law School. Uh, Bob, let's talk about Harlan Fisk Stone for a moment. Most people don't know who he was. Who was he and what did he do? Well, if you want to see Harlan Fisk Stone on the silver screen, you only have to watch the Clint Eastwood movie about J. Edgar Hoover. Because he's he's depicted in that movie when at the time when he was U.S. Attorney General, he was he was on the court. He was uh, on the court in the late twenties into the forties. He started as an associate justice and became uh, he was then he was appointed chief justice. I first knew of him because when I was at Columbia Law School, um, he had once been the dean of Columbia Law School. And if you walk along Broadway and hundred excuse me Riverside and Hundred Sixteenth Street, there's this lovely curved building, the Coliseum right at 116th and Riverside. And there's a little plaque that indicates that that's where Harlan Fiststone lived when he was the dean of Columbia Law School. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, he was on the court for about 20 years, first as an associate justice and then as chief justice. And his, his attitude about life and things seemed to change. I was, it was really interesting to, to read that during the First World War, he was on a War Department Board of Inquiry that examined cases of conscientious objectors who were denied that status by their local draft boards. He was not very well disposed to uh, men who wouldn't take up arms uh, to fight in Europe. Um, but at the end of the war, he actually criticized then Attorney General Mitchell Palmer, who was behind the so-called Palmer raids after the war. Um, there was a big attempt to deport aliens based on administrative action without allowing for any judicial review of their cases. Um, during this time, Stone also defended free speech claims for professors and socialists, I suppose his adopted New York roots uh, obviously had a big impact on him. Uh, great thing. I did not know that. And he was appointed to the court by Calvin Coolidge, uh, who was, by the way, his classmate at Amherst. Uh, it was interesting to read. Now on to more, some of the more recent judges of the New of, on the court who were New Yorkers. Until recently, four of the nine Supreme Court justices were from New York City. And they were each, they were from every single borough with the exception of Staten Island maybe propitiously because uh, of your biking to that courthouse that was torn down. It was a landmark. Um, I won't say anything about it, about Staten Island. I have family living there. Um, first, let's talk about the justice who've recently died. Firstly, Antonin Scalia. He was from Queens. From our listeners who may not be old enough to remember the court happenings during the years when Ronald Reagan was president, uh, let's talk briefly about how he got to the Supreme Court. What happened? How, what landed him there? Well, it's interesting. As you noted, he was from Queens, from Elmhurst in particular. But, uh, you know, he, he did 
once he got out of uh, high school, we said where he went to high school, Xavier High School on the 16th and, and 5th, uh, he really he really turned his back on New York City and you know didn't go to college here, law school here, didn't practice law here, uh, and really never never made any part of his adult life here. But he did have that experience, the same experience I had of commuting on the subway from Queens into Manhattan. Uh, my experience was a little different because I didn't have to carry my rifle. I wasn't going to <laughs> military school and needed it for parade. Um, but that was that carried was, it on the subway. But, yeah. <laughs> that was his experience on the subway in Queens with his rifle when it was parade day. Um, and you know, he, he the, the the most recent member of uh, of the of the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Barrett, cites Scalia as her mentor. She was his clerk. And she cites him as the greatest influence on her legal philosophy, the philosophy of uh, textual originalism. Um, but one thing that, you know, you've heard, you've heard about a lot in the paper lately, and it really is a wonderful thing, is that notwithstanding their tremendous philosophical jurisprudential differences, he and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were great friends, joint, joint lovers of the opera, would go to the opera together. And that really that's one encouraging thing that you uh, in these times to hear what the depth of their friendship and talk about ideological opposites in so many ways. Um, but of course, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was uh, had such a profound history with expanding uh, rights and liberties to people who, before she came on the scene, um, really did not have the same protections. Um, why Justice Ginsburg? Why did Bill Clinton nominate her to the nation's highest court? I heard recently that Hillary takes credit for suggesting to Bill that he take a look at uh, Ginsburg as, as, as Ginsburg as, as a nominee. Uh, she was on the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, and she had had a very distinguished career as a civil rights lawyer at the, AC, at the ACLU. She was a law professor at Rutgers and at Columbia. She, too, same experience as Frankfurter, and shamefully, 50 years later, top of her class from a national law school could not get a job at a large New York firm. She had the added burden at the time of being a woman. So Frankfurter was a Jew, Ginsburg was both a Jew and a woman, and she could not get a job at, at a distinguished law firm. Well, another first for the Supreme Court was Sonia Sotomayor. She was the first Latinx member of the court. Um, and she may be the first Supreme Court justice who is from the Bronx. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I've never heard of anybody else being from the Bronx and being on the court. Um, she was actually appointed to the bench um, by she was a district court judge appointed by the first President Bush. Um, what was her legal career like before she joined the Supreme Court? Uh, she had been in private practice. She was a federal district court judge. As you said, she was from the Bronx. There's the Bronx and the Bronx. Some people want to show their chops and say they're from the Bronx. And if you inquire further, you learn they're from Riverdale. She was truly from the Bronx. She was lived in public housing, public housing, which has since been renamed for her in her honor. And as we said before, she went to a, a Catholic high school in the Bronx, not surprising given her background. And then she went to Princeton and there you know, she, as she writes in her autobiography, she felt completely at sea, completely at loss. And this feeling of being an outsider surely uh, contributed to her role as championing the rights of the disenfranchised, the marginalized. I think that it's an obvious outgrowth of her experience growing up in New York City. She was in private practice for a firm at a, at a firm called uh, Pavia and Harcourt. Uh, she was on the, on the federal court bench after that, and she was appointed 
um, um, I think was it 2009 or 2010, I think. 2009, actually, is when uh, uh, David Souter retired from the court right yeah. after Obama became president. Um, well, we have about a minute left, and uh, we can't talk about the present Supreme Court without talking about Manhattan native Elena Kagan. She's from Manhattan, and not only from Manhattan, but the good old Upper West Side. Uh, what was Kagan's legal history before she arrived on the Supreme Court? Uh, Kagan had uh, also been a, a Supreme Court clerk. She had been a, a professor at Harvard Law School. Um, and she, you know, just, just if I may, just a moment about uh, her, her New York City life. She lived on West End Avenue. She would buy, she convinced her rabbi to administer one of the first bat mitzvahs at that temple. Huh. Um, and uh, she went to Hunter College High School, which, you know, you might, you might, now we know of it on Madison, 90th, 91st Street, I think. At the time, it was actually on Lexington Avenue in the 50s and so before they acquired their, their current location. And um, she, she was, as we said, she was appointed by Obama. And, uh, you know, she, she, you know she, while she is one of the more liberal members of the court, certainly now, she is not uniformly liberal on, on, on every issue. It's an interesting, uh, interesting mixture, her, approach, her, her judicial philosophy. And I dare say uh, the latest three justices who are all from New York, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, definitely gave the Supreme Court a New York sensibility based on the experiences that they had growing up and uh, what the right thing to do for people under the law is. Well, we're out of time. Bob Piggott, thank you so much for being a guest on this special show about New Yorkers and the U.S. Supreme Court. Robert Pickett is a lawyer at Phipps Houses, the general counsel. He teaches nonprofit law at Fordham Law School, and he's also the author of this great book called New York's Legal Landmarks, a guide to legal edifices, institutions, law, history, and curiosities on the city streets. Bob, thanks for being a guest on the show. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. If you have comments or questions about the show or would like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Who loves your book, by the way? <laughs> One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the great Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, and politics, all around what makes a great leader. 
the personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 